Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. The women of the WNBA are paving the way to demand positive social change. From honoring the life of Breonna Taylor to addressing issues like pay equity, maternal health, and civil rights. But that activism has alienated some fans who say sports and politics shouldn't coexist. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we listen back to a conversation about the world of sports activism. Historian and professor Amira Rose Davis talks about how sports and activism are intricately linked in a conversation with WNBA star Asia Wilson on why she's using her platform to advocate for change. But first, one of the WNBA's biggest stars will likely not make the team's opening day roster next month. That's because Phoenix Mercury Center Brittany Griner has been in custody in Russia since February when she was charged with drug possession. What does the future look like for the two-time Olympic medalist? And what does her story say about how we value female athletes? Tamron Spruill is a sports journalist, and she's been following Griner's case and advocating for her release. She's author of the forthcoming book, Court Queens, the story of the WNBA's power, passion, and perseverance on and off the court. I asked Tamron how she reacted to the news of Griner's arrest. When I heard the news, I remember it was a Saturday, March 5th. I was working, I was working on the book, and I just saw, you know, a bold cap email from the Phoenix Mercury acknowledging a situation that I immediately Googled it and then saw the Times report. And I just started sobbing because I knew what she would be up against because of the war, but also because of how some countries like Russia, Iran, and others tend to imprison Westerners to use them for political exchange pieces. And then the fact that she's an LGBTQ person who's been very outspoken on behalf of LGBTQ rights left me just gutted and shocked that. You know, that same day I learned um, from a, it was a response to a tweet. Angel McCauntry in the WNBA just put, you know, something like my homie's been there for two weeks already. And so like that was new. You know, we just learned that she was arrested and that's the official reporting. But we had to learn like from a Twitter reply that she'd been there for a couple of weeks by the time we learned of it. And that's what to me was just, it's like I felt my blood run cold. There are so many layers to this story, so many layers to who Brittany Griner is as a person and how all those layers of her identity as a Black queer woman playing in the WNBA, how that has played out over her career and now the reaction. And rather than accepting that as there's nothing we can do that's happening over there in Russia, you took action. And you took action quickly by launching an online petition that has now received over 70,000 signatures. What's the action that you want to see from the U.S. government, the U.S. State Department, and those who are in positions to really address the situation? When I first learned that this happened, I reached out to the WNBA and asked them first, 
would I be impeding on anything if I were to call on my fellow citizens to champion um, her on her behalf and ask our elected, elected officials to prioritize her release and to prioritize her amid negotiating to try to help the Ukrainian people. I just did not want her to get lost in shuffle. Um, and so that was really the motivating thing. If the WNBA with much bigger platform than I have and the NBA was not stepping up to do this, I felt like somebody had to. And this was me putting down my uh, role as a journalist. And sometimes I feel, you know, that we in this in this industry can kind of get blindsided by the rules um, and the ethics that somehow somehow separate us from humanity. And if we're not doing this for humanity on behalf of humanity, what are we doing it for? You know? And I, I mean, I saw there was um, a CNN reporter who was on the ground and somebody needed help in Ukraine and she paused what she was doing to help a person in, in need. And to me, it's no different than that. It sounds like there was this tension between what is the role of a journalist to simply report the news versus what is the role of a person who says, what can I do where I am to raise attention and to actually motivate action? And what's so delicate in all of this is, you know, why hasn't the WNBA and the NBA made a bigger point of this? This is one of their star athletes. This is someone who is very well known, who has helped multiple franchises. And that silence, that relative silence is deafening. The fact that the U.S. State Department, the U.S. government took so long, as you said, to find out via a tweet that this star player had been arrested if Brittany Griner had been an NBA player, would there have been the silence? Would the State Department have been as quiet? Do you think that's a fair critique? Or do you think it really is complicated to prioritize her safety over, say, a public outcry? So there can be a public show of support that isn't, uh, we know in the 2020 season, the WNBA players wore the names, the name of Brianna Taylor on their back, say her name advocating for justice for her murder. And to this day, nobody's been convicted of murdering her. And if we're not going to put Brittany Griner's name and have everybody be number 42 during the season, which obviously is not going to happen, um, what else can be done to make a point of letting her know, letting her family know that people care and are just doing whatever they can to say she's not forgotten? Some journalists have said, well, we don't want to make a big deal of it because of her safety. And that's true, but it's a story that's happening. So why aren't you reporting it? The people who are saying we need to you know, keep this quiet and try to work on things behind the scenes, you're assuming that the people who arrested her don't know who she is. Of course they know who she is. She's been playing there for six years. She just won another gold medal. So, you know, that to me is just also out the window. And if we look at former uh, people who've been imprisoned, um, a former journalist uh, with Washington Post who was imprisoned for 15 months in Iran, he said there should be an outcry. And he's like, leagues the size of the NBA and WNBA with their reach and their money, why aren't they doing more, you know, to try to help her in a bigger way? So I don't know what's going on in those rooms, but I felt that silence is never the answer. And I think that in our society, Black women especially, 
can look and say where silence may mean something comforting to some groups, but for Black women, it really does not. You know, I think about Brittany Griner and the many other Black women, women of color, playing in the WNBA. And I think about the pride that we saw in so many of the players who were drafted recently, the pride of their families to say they have worked so hard all their lives. Now they have this chance. And we juxtapose that with the fact that we're about to start the next WNBA season. And we go into that scene knowing that women playing in that league still make markedly less than their male competitors who make more just to be on the team and on the bench, so to speak. And that, I think, is even more important, Tamron, when we think about why Brittany Griner was in Russia in the first place, that here you have this professional athlete, Olympic medalist, who still, because of the low salary in the WNBA, has to consider playing in other places. Do you think that this situation with Brittany Griner will change the willingness of players to play overseas and to consider that option? And if so, what should the WNBA and the NBA be doing to address that economic gap? I think we have to look at equity and value, right? So where we want... We allow men who could be 17, 18 years old, you know, one and done out of college, 18, 19, whatever, go into the NBA and start off making a salary basically just to sit on a bench. And then for women, there are champions and all-stars and MVPs who make dramatically less. So when when we're looking at this, you know, issue of value, we have to ask ourselves, to, to me, it's beyond bigger than the in WNBA and NBA. It's our society that values women, particularly Black women, so much less. And we, the league is 80% Black women. So now I see a turn happening. We're seeing more players in commercials. And so they're probably going to be able to start getting some more money that way from the investment side of things. But until our society really gets on board and says that we're going to value you know, um, John Paul Jones in the State Farm commercial as much as we do Chris Paul and Sabrina Ionescu, then and that and that becomes normalized. And and just the way these are, that these players are treated just like the men, it's going to be a long time for their salaries to go up. Changes have been made. The CBA of 2020 made drastic improvements, but it's not the kind of money, it's not the kind of NBA lifestyle that they're getting overseas. And the final thing I need to say about that is we also need to be a little suspicious of where that money's coming from. As I've researched and am working on this part of the book after all of this happened and talking to some players, players in their home countries in these European leagues do not make as much as American players. The American players are highly coveted, are paid more, and we know that in some countries the money is dirty money for lack of a better word. We know about the oligarchs. We've seen what's happening with the seizures and the sanctions and and what have you. So I guess some players I think will continue because the money's so good. I, on the other hand, would hope that people around them would advise them, you know, to think carefully about who they're doing business with to make sure that teams are on the up and up and, you know, that they're not involved with people who are doing dirty business. What would you say is a change that the WNBA could make today 
to address some of the things that you talked about in terms of the sources of money, where players are going, players' overall safety and wellness and livelihood so that they are valued as people and not just as producers of revenue? Well, that's such a great question. And I was told as recently as 2019 by an editor to stick to sports. There's a literal word in a phone call um, because he was irate with something that I wrote that I think was a little sensitive to him because it was about, you know, racial dynamics. And it's like, here I am, the one black black woman in the newsroom and, you know, that's rocking the boat. So that's a, a falsehood that's always been a lie. I'm proud of the WNBA for challenging that and for being leaders and showing that. When they walk off the court, they are Black women in society. And so these are these, this is the reality. So for their own, the benefit of their own existence and to have lives where they can feel happy and safe, you know, what are they going to do? Just be silent? I'm proud of them for doing that. In terms of the W, I feel like Kathy Engelbert has done an amazing job as commissioner to really get things going. She has, you know, a strong financial background and has really amassed, you know, these sponsorship bills. And she convinced them. And now we're seeing some of those things take effect. The CBA each year is taking effect and the salaries are higher and higher. But I feel like if players are going to continue to play overseas, there must be some kind of oversight on protocols concerning the countries that players are going to. Because, you know, in Russia, the State Department had issued several trouble warnings, you know, um, for very specific reasons. Foreigners are being harassed and, you know, could come under come under things with the government and the police and protests are happening because, you know, even Russians felt that the war, a war was going to happen and they were already pushing back. So, who my big questions are who is in the room who's on the phone and the text advising these players and telling them oh it's okay to fly into russia and i feel like if if players are going to still do that the league as if these players are just looked at as their assets how are you going to protect them and you know like agents i don't know like there's no rules right now maybe the league needs to on its own you know, kind of monitor travel advisories to make sure that players are not ending up in, in harm's way. We are now at 25 years in for the WNBA, and you are a sports journalist who's working on your first book, and it's called Court Queens, the story of the WNBA's power, passion, and perseverance on and off the court. Two things, what motivated you to write the book, and what should readers expect? Oh, well, the motivation was easy because it was heartbreaking. And that is, I was talking to my niece and I was asking her, this is a kid who grew up in sport. She played soccer. She did gymnastics. She did girls on the run with my sister, her mom. And I said, well, Alana, you know, are you interested in basketball at all? Do you know of any basketball players? And she's like, LeBron James. I was like, any others? She's like, Steph Curry. And of course she would know of them. I was like, do you know of any women basketball players? And she was like, no. And I said, did you know that there's a league for women just like there is the NBA? And she's like, no, I didn't know. And this was around the All-Star game in 2018. And I called her, you know, the day of the game. And I was like, Alana, come to it. It's on. You can watch it. And that was the first basketball game. And she fell in love with Kayla McBride. She was mic'd up for the game. And she was just like so enthralled. 
It was her first time seeing that. And that made me really angry because I grew up in the era when the leak started and I watched them from day one and they were everywhere when it started. And I know how seeing them changed my life and helped me to be my best self by seeing other black women daring. What people can expect is the history of the league told with as many voices as possible included across 25 year history, but with deep examination of these issues we've been speaking about, the status you know, on the social hierarchy of women, black women, athletic women, gay women, in a society that is, you know, values all of those groups less. So it's a look at how this league has thrived despite all of that just to exist. Tamron Sproul is a sports journalist and author of the forthcoming book, Court Queens, the story of the WNBA's power, passion, and perseverance on and off the court. Tamron, thank you so much. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. When we come back, we dive into the history of sports activism. And how does WNBA phenom Asia Wilson use her voice to uplift others on and off the court? I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later in the hour, we'll hear from WNBA star Asia Wilson on what it means to use her platform for social change. But now, Amira Rose Davis. She's Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State University. She co-hosts the feminist sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And she's author of a forthcoming book called Can't Eat a Medal, Black Women Athletes Under Jim Crow. Amira, welcome to Disrupted. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. So let's get right into it. I I want to begin our conversation by addressing the role of activism in sports. There seems to be this divide from some people saying, we don't want our sports to be political at all. And then others demanding that athletes use their platform to actually engage. So talk to us about this tension. Can sports really be separate from politics? Yeah, absolutely not. Sports are inherently political. And I would really say that it's a false dichotomy. I think the people who say, oh, keep politics out of sports, we've seen have no problem turning around and having politics in sports when it's their politics. And we've seen this hypocrisy on full display over and over and over again. The same people who say, keep politics out of sports, don't kneel for an anthem, don't put your fist up during the national anthem. Um, Never stop to question that the anthem in a space of sports is already political. Sports and politics are always kind of entwined and wrapped together. I think that, you know, certainly the tension comes in with uh, people using that platform, using that space and refusing to be just entertainers and the fans who, uh, fans and ownerships and models and all the people who just want to not be disturbed by uncomfortable truths. And I think that that's really where the tension is. And so I think that moving away from trying to convince people that sports are political and instead thinking through the ways to have effective athletic activism is is really the direction the conversation needs to go in. You know, some people say that sports is an escape or a respite 
from the kinds of tensions and challenges that they experience in their everyday lives. And yet you have this book about Black women athletes titled Can't Eat a Medal, The Lives and Labors of Black Women Athletes in the Age of Jim Crow. Take us through that story, that arc of Black women in sport, and in some ways how they haven't had the luxury of choosing not to be engaged or not to understand those political dynamics that, as we see in broader society, may not provide a space for Black women to make that choice. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that the long history of Black women's athletics, you get to see all of the complexity, both the possibilities and the politics of sports. You see um, sports being a, a pathway to a certain type of freedom and upward mobility. And so I think that in some ways it has been an area for Black girls and Black women to find a piece of themselves or find certain pathways, but they have had to claw for every step that they've taken on that road. They've had to, especially as we move into the modern era, they've had to demand and insist on resources and equity in sports and equal pay and just the right to exist as professional athletes, as college athletes and youth sports. And then at the same time, one of the things and where the title of, of my book comes from is that these, these Black women are always like, well, you can use me symbolically, right, for all of this escapism or goodwill or whatever, but that doesn't really translate into my actual freedom or material benefits. And so Jesse Owens said the line, I can't eat a metal woman, Rudolph echoed it, right? Um, it's like, okay, this is not going to actually feed me. It's not going to give me a job. It's not going to keep me safe po from police brutality like that. It, there's limits to this. And so part of the story that I wanted to document and tell was these possibilities and the politics of their athletic participation, the use of their symbolic representation and the material reality. And it might not be a feel good tale. It's not going to be the tales that you hear in children's books, which are a particular vessel for telling stories of, of black people in sports, but particularly black women. There's a, a disproportionate number of children's books about Black women uh, athletes that, you know, in 20 pages allows them to overcome sexism and racism and, and do this kind of fairy tale dream rhetoric story um, that never really considers or takes up uh, their lives after that moment, which sees them existing as Black women in America, where they have to demand space, they have to combat erasure, they have to combat stereotypes, and they have to, you know, grind for everything that they don't get and, and really deserve. So let's talk about that grind and how difficult that grind is for Black women I remember when Naomi Osaka and Serena Williams were playing against each other. And it almost felt like there was no win because they were pitted against each other, not as athletes, but as black women. And to see the tears for Naomi of, this is someone that I grew up wanting to emulate. And can we be in this moment without people attaching the stereotypes about, you know, whether Serena was too aggressive? Is she too angry? Does she intimidate people? And yet what we also know from your work and from others is that even Black women who excel to the heights of their sports still don't make as much money as their male counterparts. So talk to us through that and how we still impose these sorts of distinctions when it comes to what we think people's talent is worth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that moment with Naomi and Serena at the US Open Finals is really instructive because 
in that moment, you saw familiar tropes, you know, being wielded against Serena. Um, you saw a very racist cartoon, right, out of Australia that accentuated uh, her lips and, and her, her face and her figure. But the other thing that that did on the side of Naomi is it lightened her. It whitened her. Her, her hair became very blonde and very straight as almost to render her victim. And part and parcel of that is an effort to erase the legacy of Serena, because when you're looking at people like Coco Goff, or you're looking at, you know, people like Naomi Osaka, who's, whose parents literally were like watching the Williams sisters and it's like, oh, let me put my, let me put my girl in tennis. Um, and so I think that to the point about even in individual sports, women, Black women are disadvantaged is absolutely right. We know that there's a, you know, there's levels to this. And yet we know that for years, Serena made a lot less than her counterparts in, in sponsorship and endorsement deals, which is where a lot of the money comes in. And so those sponsorships mean a lot, but those sponsorships are grounded in racist market logics, you know, attached to very old stereotypes about like what sells right and what is marketable and so what we haven't seen um until recently is the ability for women within collective sports within team sports to make their own push for for monetization in that way except that we now see the needle move a little bit like with the WNBA which is still way under where it needs to be but honestly as a testament to their union and this is one of the differences right the unionization the unions having a strong players association having a strong union in sports is really underexplored but has allowed the WNBA to make many of the moves that they've made including a brand new collective bargaining agreement that is certainly not you know, everything that they need, but it is really one of the most progressive CBAs that is allowing them to get more earning opportunities, increased investment from brands into the league. And we're really on kind of unprecedented territory in that regard. What you've just done is highlighted the sense of power and agency of these women athletes who said, you don't get to define me. I define not just myself, but really collectively this platform. Are you hopeful that this awakening of others that has been centered on the long labor and commitment of Black women athletes will be this catalyst for change? You know, I am, I find hope in their actions. I find hope in in grassroots activism. I find hope on in people in the streets. I find I find hope in the people, right? Um, I'm under no disillusion that these structures that we're you know fighting against and that they're fighting against or whatever are just going to yield, right? Like I see many of these gains when we see leagues say when the NFL is like great we're going to paint uh end racism in the end zone like okay that solved it thanks um but when that happens I really see it as this sense of like how much can we give with that while we're protecting all of the rest of the assets and equity and resources and, and stuff like that so I I tend to look at a lot of that cynically but what gives me hope are, are the ones who are unrelenting and the WNBA, you know, I wrote about this in a piece for Bitch Media about refusal um, coming off the heels of the Wildcat strike when people returned to play and there was a conversation it's like, okay, well, did that mean anything then? 
And part of what I wanted to highlight is that the WNBA's playing is also a sense of refusal in that they refuse to disappear. They refuse to go away. They refuse to shut up. They refuse to cede any ground um, that they stand on. And I think that to me, there is a certain hope within their audacity. But, but the, it's true, right? When you see somebody say, hey, I'm not here to just be inspiration porn for like, you know, young girls that you are trying to be like, this is women and whatever. When you have people like Courtney Williams saying, no, like this is me, I am a black woman, right? When you have Laisha Clarendon saying, I'm non-binary. When you have people, a woman in the WNBA saying like, this is who we are unapologetically and we are going to do our job. We're gonna demand equity in it. We are going to reach out because we know that we don't have all the answers. So we're gonna reach out to activists. We're gonna reach out to politicians. We're gonna, you know, reach out and run our own foundations. We're gonna have players who say, I'm not going to play. I think it's a distraction. I'm going to go work on um, criminal justice reform. I'm going to go work on um, social justice in in the cities um, and gun violence prevention. I'm going to do that. And you have the collective of the league saying, we got you. We see that as an extension of us and not this kind of feeling like, oh, you're distracting, you're not committed to the game. And I think that they're making space for that model of collective athletic activism. And it's really in the collective because individuals have, you know, we see that individuals can be certainly disruptive, but we also see the precarity of that disruption. We see that with Colin, we've seen that with Eric Reed, we've seen that with unknown people who've gotten cut that we even lose sight of. But the the power of the collective, I think, was what was on display. And I think that that's the energy going forward. And I think that that is the energy that gives me anything approximate to hope. And I would be remiss if I didn't say that their visibility, their increased visibility contributes to that. In a time where, to take it full circle and go back to your first question, critics who look at like the low numbers of the NBA and say, oh, go woke, you go broke, and this is what happens. Well, first of all, obviously lies, damn lies, and statistics. <laughs> Everybody, everybody's viewership is down, um, except for the WNBA, whose finals viewing went up 15%, the National Women's Soccer League that went up 400%, you know, because all of a sudden you can access and see their games and not even all of them. They weren't even on like good channels and they still had that type of growth. And so that is also something to behold is that the WNBA and the black women, especially with, within the WNBA and the white allies in the league have not only said, this is who we are, and we are unapologetic about who we are and we're pushing forward with that and had and made their league get behind them so that from four years to now you have actually league imperatives uh, aligned with this. But they told sponsors the same thing. Like, we're not going to shrink it and pink it. We're not going to all have long ponytails. We're not going to do this. And sponsors have now fallen in line and they have made brands come to them on their terms and increase their platform. And that is certainly a sight to behold. And I didn't think that would happen. So if that can happen, um, then I do have a lot of hope with them leading the way. Amir Rose Davis is Assistant Professor of History and African-American Studies at Penn State University. She co-hosts the feminist sports podcast, Burn It All Down, and is author of the forthcoming book, Can't Eat a Medal. The Lives and Labors of Black Women Athletes in the Age of Jim Crow. Amira, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thank y'all for having me. 
Coming up, WNBA star Asia Wilson. She'll talk about her role on the league's Social Justice Council. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about the role of activism in sports. Asia Wilson is one of the biggest stars in the WNBA, and she's an Olympic gold medalist. She currently plays for the Las Vegas Aces, and she's a member of the WNBA Social Justice Council. And she hasn't been shy about using her platform to demand social change. Asia Wilson, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you have distinguished yourself as a formidable athlete since your time at South Carolina, but all this work that you do on the court is matched by the work that you're doing off the court and through the league with social justice. Tell us about the motivation. What makes you want to tackle issues of social justice? Yeah, I mean, I mean, my number one is just has to be that, and I always say this, when you take away the jersey, when you take away the accolades, and everything that may make Asia Wilson, you have a black woman. Uh, that's what the first thing people see if they do not know me, if I'm not in uniform, if I'm not putting a ball into a hoop. And so it's it's the life that I live. And, and when I hear these stories and when I'm watching the news and, and on Twitter or on social and I see it, I just honestly think that it could be my mom, it could be my dad, it could be my boyfriend, my brother, and it could also be me. So that was something that really connected with me so quickly. And, and I mean, at a young age, of course you see it, it's not like all of a sudden 2020 it's police brutality. No, this has been something that we've been living on for years. And it's just, as I got older, I knew that I wanted to make a difference. And when I'm in a, and I'm so grateful to be in a league that is so open to us doing our own thing and standing up for what we believe in and how, how unified we really are as a league. And, and when you have a league like that, you just, it gives you that comfort that you can push and use your platform in a, in a better way than what you're using is just playing on ESPN, but letting things be known. And that's something that's key. That's the reason why I wanted to be on the social justice council is just to, you know, use our platform in a positive way and to bring light to things that people brush underneath the rug or just turn the, turn the other cheek to. For some people, they're suddenly waking up to that reality that, as you mentioned, has been the lived experience. Was it something about growing up in South Carolina that uh, made you aware of these issues in a different way that you can now carry with you as a player in the league? Or was it just sort of an overall awareness of struggle in the United States? Uh, I, I think I think it's a mixture of both. I, I have to credit my parents. Uh, they went out on a, a on a limb, I guess you could say, and they sent me to private school where it was only maybe ten percent uh, black, and, and if that, it's maybe like three percent black girls. And so they really kind of then. And I went to my private school for first through twelfth grade. Like I, I loved it, and I'm not going to take away from it. It really helped mold me into the person I am today. But I think doing that opened up my eyes to a lot of different things that I probably wouldn't have never noticed growing up. Like I had friends that were white and I maybe couldn't go over to their house because I was black. I experienced that like we all probably have. And I think it opened to open my eyes at a young age, which then allowed me to open myself up to just being more aware. I, I think growing up and when my name started to get a little weight to it uh, in South Carolina and everyone just knew this basketball player, my parents would always say, Asia, 
always be aware of your surroundings. Always look after your, your, the people that are coming up uh, around you because you just don't know. And I didn't really think of anything. I didn't think of much. I'm like, okay, they're just being parents. But then as I got older, I was like, they, were, they wasn't just saying that for the good of their health. They were saying that because they knew that people didn't look, they, some people saw me as a threat. Some people just did not like me because of this color of my skin. And growing up in South Carolina, where you see Confederate flags very often, you see that deep-seated, like you said, racism. It was hard, but I just became more aware of what's, what the real world is. Uh, and being an athlete, you get caught up in your own little bubble. You're in this world. It's kind of like you're untouchable because people see you as something. But then you kind of lose sight of the real world and, and being aware of it. And the sooner you are aware of it, you see the real world and how nasty and cruel it really is. Let's talk about that bubble because it would be easy to stay in that bubble and just stick to basketball or uh, stick to honing your talent. But you and other members of the league said that's not enough. And you're now part of this social justice council of using the platforms that you have to really push for change. Talk to us about why it's important for that council to exist and what you hope to accomplish. It's funny that you you say the council. The council was literally like, Alasia cleared and texted me and I was like, yes, I'm, I'm in for it because I knew I wanted to be a part of history. I knew that when I'm in a league that is predominantly Black women, I always say that we're a double minority because it's like, okay, we're a woman, but then at that, we're the Black woman. And so I just really wanted to help the younger generation out. I wanted to use my platform in a way that I'm like, you know what, I'm going to stand up for what I believe in no matter what. And it wasn't easy. And like you said, we always get the short end of the stick, but I think it goes to show how elite and how just boss women we truly are uh, deep, deep down inside. Like, yes, we can run up and down a court and put a ball in a hoop, but at the same time, we're business women. We have our foundations. We stand up for what we believe in. We use our platforms for the good of our own people and our community. And we're moms on top of that. We have some women that are in our league that are our moms. So I think that just goes to show how much we really care and, and how much we want to bring a difference and a change within this world. And when you have that, you can't go look past it. Part of planting those seeds and, and seeing them come into growth is also nourishing that soil. And so you and the council have done that by looking to the wise council of women who have charted this path, people like Professor Kimberly Crenshaw. Why then in this moment where people are talking about race, have you also said it's important to look at the fullness of women's experiences in this context? You've used that platform to bring women together. Yeah, I mean, I just, I think it just goes back to how I said that we just look at it as it could be us. Uh, we're like, no one is safe in this matter and we just have to bring light to it because, you know, not trying to diminish anything, but when George Floyd died and when he got murdered, Breonna Taylor did just a few weeks after. And it's like, you you never really heard her truth, like you never really heard her story because, you know, everyone's focused on George Floyd. I mean, I get it, That that's that's our thing, but it's just like, the black woman always gets the short end of the stick. And we just wanted to amplify their voices and be a voice for the voiceless of the black woman because we're always the one that gets drowned out. And if we do, if we are using our voices, now we're the angry black woman. So we're always getting hit with the stereotype. And I think what better way to stand up and, and, and preach and be there and, and to showcase these women than black women as a whole. And so I think that is key as to why we, 
wore the Breonna Taylor on the back of our jerseys. While we had uh, intro, before our intros, we always had facts or people like Professor Crenshaw come in and, and speak. So, because her voice needs to be heard. And I think that is key as to what we do. And I don't see a, a better league that could do it the way that we can do it because we have women in there that could experience, and I hate to say it, but it's true. But it's, it's the life that we live. You know, the WNBA since its inception has always been about pushing against those negative stereotypes or those limiting stereotypes. And you've talked about bringing awareness to the issues facing Black communities overall, but particularly Black girls. Why do you think it's so important to speak to Black girls and to affirm them in a way that they feel seen as well? You know, the Black son or the black boy gets the talk of, you know, you have the target on your back. And when you see the police, have your hands up and just be ready at all times. But that black daughter, that black girl doesn't get that talk. Either it's because they just think, okay, she's a woman and I don't know how she's going to take it. She's sensitive. Or just because they just don't even think that she needs to have that talk. But the black girls matter. I think growing up, you always see just little things that just diminish the black girl and then she grows up to be this woman with just trying to carve her way out of this hole and it's so much deeper than that and and, and my biggest thing is you have to start at the root you have to start at that younger generation to let them know that their voice is so powerful that they're able to do whatever they want because i know that's what my parents instilled in me through and through is just to know that you don't let anyone stop you from achieving your goals and i think that's key and a lot of people Maybe don't do that to their Black daughter or their Black young girl in their life. But I think we just have to not just focus on the Black boy or Black man, but also the Black woman as well. Because you see it all the time. Oh, when something's going good, we're always like, oh, our Black queens, praise them. They're here. Yes, hear them. But then the minute we say something or the minute we do something, we get criticized or we get knocked down. Or we're just, they might not even want to qualify us because our name has an apostrophe in it. It's those little things that are so key and I just knew that I needed to just attack that that circle because I was once that little black girl with the apostrophe in her name. Who knows what people said when they looked at my name? But now that it's on ESPN or now that I can put the ball in the hoop, oh, it's good. It's perfect. But it's for that young girl that may not have that opportunity to be that player, but yet know that her voice matters and, and people like me are standing behind her. One of the things that I really appreciate amongst the many things that you've done is this notion of affirming the power that each of us has right where we are. And you say, if you remember one thing from this letter, remember this, you don't have to be a WNBA player or politician or celebrity to have an impact on someone else. And so you are using your platform, not just to carry out the beliefs that you have to honor the lessons you learned from your parents, but you are also empowering other people to do that. You're founding member of the More Than a Vote campaign to work against voter disenfranchisement. How do you see that connection between affirming community, but also reminding people of the need to be engaged politically and civically? Yeah, I mean, I think it just, it all has the connection of just being a good human. I think at the end of the day, it's nothing that we're overlooking or it's nothing too big. It's nothing too small, but it's just, just being a good human all around. I'm not saying the world is perfect and, and it's going to be perfect if we act this certain way. I guess I just want to say like, put yourself in someone else's shoes, put yourself as to living with someone that has nothing and still have to supply for their family. I think once we start channeling our minds in a way that's like, 
I like you feel sorry for someone and you just wish them the best and you hope the best for them. But then you put yourself in their shoes and it's like, okay, now how do you feel? And then helping that way. And I think the biggest thing is knowing that you don't have to be a celebrity to just make a difference. I think people kind of think, oh, they have the money to fund this and give this away and start this. But it doesn't even have to be like that. It starts at the baseline level and just connecting and just researching and connecting within your community and having those hard talks that may bring those goosebumps or raise hairs on your arms like those chilling chilling stories that we hear that needs to be said and needs to be heard I think that is key so I think that's all the connection of just being a human look past the fact of just money or just what you into or how you're raised but put yourself in someone else's shoes and and think okay now would I be able to live like that. Yeah, this has been a, a difficult year and you have been very candid about the emotional toll that all of this can take on people. Asia, how do we break that stigma around mental wellness, particularly within Black communities? Why do we need to talk about this now? Uh, I, I think because it's real. I think if we, if you haven't seen it before 2020, you see it, you, you felt it, you've seen it now and i think that's the biggest thing is like the more you see it the more it breaks the stigma because then it'll be it'll be normalized like you will see it more you'll hear it more and like you said it is tough in the black community where it's like oh nothing's wrong with you you need to be grateful or just go pray it away no it's so much deeper than that it's it's so it's so deep rooted that it's like if we see it more we hear it more we feel it more, then it'll become normalized to a fact that it's like, okay, yes, maybe I do need to just talk it out. Maybe I do need just a little help with my mental awareness. And I, I think it just, it's better when you hear it from athletes, because I think they see us as machines. I think they see us as just like, okay, yeah, you're good at what you do. You make it look easy. So nothing can be wrong with you. You have all the money, you have all these accolades, you're perfect. But in, when they really hear our stories and when they really see and put it together, I think it'll go a long way. And then they kind of have self-reflection on themselves and say, okay, how can I go about it? So it's going to be tough to break the stigma, of course, but I think the more you see it, uh, the more you hear about it from real life stories, I think it'll then start to release the stigma a little bit. But I think 2020 really made me realize that I need to focus on myself a lot more uh, for the betterment of me and my future and the people around me. You know, one of those tough lessons is that self-care doesn't make you selfish. It actually makes you better. It makes you better as a person, but also better able to do the other things that you are so committed to. And the common thread through everything you've said to us today, Asia, is this need to affirm our common humanity. And that that common humanity can sometimes mean that we're feeling weak or not fully ourselves, but it also means that we can see in others the need to do that. And it doesn't matter if you wear a WNBA jersey or you're just sort of an everyday person to be able to do that and affirm that in others. Given all that you see, all that you've experienced, all the amazing things that you have committed yourself to, do you have hope in terms of moving forward that the activism and connection of women athletes and people more generally can get us to a better place in this country? I, I always have hope. I try to be optimistic in everything that I do. I, I love to bet on myself. I love to bet on the women around me, the, the people around me. And I, I do. I honestly think that it's going to take some time. Uh, it's not going to even be 
in the near two years, three years, but even farther than that. But my biggest thing that gives me hope is hopefully in the future, my child, uh, whether it's a son or a daughter, does not have to go through the same thing that I'm going through because it rips me to shreds when we were going through all of this in the bubble. And my parents are saying that I'm going through the same thing that they're going through. That means that there's no, there's no change. There hasn't been anything that's dip off. It's just now people are even more bolder. Uh, people are using their voices a lot more. So hopefully it kind of speeds the curve. But that's the thing that gives me hope is knowing that maybe the next generation, if I continue to do what I do and work hard on what I do and have these and follow these people around me and help uplift them, that hopefully the future and the next generation, my children's children doesn't have to go through what I'm going through. I am blessed with a platform that I can use in any type of way. And I always say when I'm talking to my to a young group is, I don't care if you don't understand anything that I'm saying, at least just if I just touch one person, I feel like I can make a difference just by touching one person because who knows what they'll then go and, and encourage to do. And I think that's key is if we can just change one little thing or, or just hear, let someone hear us out for one little thing, we're gonna be good and it's just the seeds. You just gotta plant the seeds and just pray for growth. That was Asia Wilson, Las Vegas Aces forward, three-time WNBA All-Star, and an Olympic gold medalist. We recorded that conversation back in 2020. This episode was originally produced by Daniela Luna and Katie Tularski. The rest of our team now includes Jane Scoble-Wolf and Shekinah Collier. Our interns are Michaela Savitt and Sarah Gasparato. And if you want to hear more Disrupted, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. 